0: Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 650th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who works toward bee conservation and biodiversity in urban areas. We're talking with Jennifer Foltz Sweat about urban bee communities. Jennifer began researching wild bee ecology in 2002 while a graduate student in California. Her studies focused on determining how wild bee communities differed between grassland habitats and urban areas. She moved back to Arizona where she grew up in 2009 and began teaching at Arizona State University and the Maricopa County Community College District. Jennifer continues to conduct research on urban bee communities with her undergraduate students. She is interested in measuring native bee foraging on urban flowering plants and characterizing urban bee communities. Welcome to the show today, Jennifer.
1: Are you ready to rock bees? Absolutely.
0: Awesome. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you are today?
1: It's an interesting story, but I actually started studying primates when I began in research. Yeah, so that was my undergraduate experience. And I went to Costa Rica and Barbados to study primates. But as I started to progress in the science field, I realized that if you love science and ecology, it does not matter which organism you select, they're all fascinating. And so I shifted in graduate school to look at bee populations because I realized how important it is that we conserve these populations really for our own prosperity. Uh-huh. Right? Pollinators are absolutely essential to our food supply. And bees, which is what I focus on, pollinate 30% of the food that we have in our crops and in our food supply. Wow. Yeah, so once I realized how important they were, I started researching these in the Central Valley in California. And as you mentioned, I compared natural habitats, grasslands, because that's what the Central Valley is full of, that right. in agriculture and compared that to urban areas. And at the time, most people were focusing on natural habitats. And so there wasn't a lot of research on urban areas. And that really fascinated me because let's face it, urbanization is not going away. And they predict that the movement of people is going to be into these urban areas. And so I became really fascinated in how these areas can help us conserve bees and pollinators.
0: Wow. You do something really curious. You're actually participating in something you call citizen science, which is yes. really
1: engaging
0: us and out here that aren't in academia. Tell us about that.
1: So citizen science, I am so excited about the huge increase in citizen science projects so basically what they are is we engage non scientists scientists whoever want to participate in collecting this really important data so as we have increased citizen science projects on pollinators we're getting so much data on how these bees use urban areas and information on species richness and abundance and interestingly enough, when citizen science projects first started, there was a lot of, I would say, doubt about how like effective these projects are. But there have been several studies that have compared the data that our citizens have collected and have validated it with researchers actually confirming that the data is correct. So what wow. I'm referring to in yeah, it's so awesome, right? And now scientists are really embracing these projects. So as far as bees are concerned, people can do observational, they can collect bees, which you know a lot of people are hesitant to do. And they can separate their observations into different types. Like, here's a big black bee, here's a tiny little green shiny bee. And they separate them, they group them based on how the bees look. And we have had our bee identification experts confirm these groupings, and they are very accurate. And so what I tell people when they're getting involved in citizen science, this is so important to us as researchers. Funding can be scarce, and this is a way of increasing the the data that we collect, and looking at trends across different regions.
0: How does one, a curious person like me, get involved in this process of being a citizen science and, and basically collecting and donating data?
1: That's a really good question. So there is a citizen science network, which just do a search on Google or whatever for citizen science network. And so there's like the great sunflower project that started in San Francisco so people can plant sunflowers and we'll send you, I say we because it's a colleague of mine, we send you sunflower seeds so they're all the same variety and then you monitor the pollinators that come to it. So really it's just a matter of a Google search and I would say that there are citizen science projects in almost every state. They could be birds, fish, pollinators, whatever, whatever you happen to be interested in. But I highly endorse these. Whoa. Okay. First of all,
0: and I I say this more and more lately, the reason I do this podcast is because I like to learn new stuff. I had no idea. I just typed in citizen science projects in the Google search engine. They are all over the place.
1: Everywhere. I'm getting chills
0: all the way down to my toes. This is so (laughs) cool.
1: It is so cool. And it is really interesting and enriching for our participants because you are actually contributing to this really important database of knowledge. Mm -hmm.
0: Oh, this is truly epic. I haven't had something this epic on the podcast in a long time. This is great. Yeah, this is cool. So yeah, go to Google or one of your DuckDuckGo, one of your search engines, type in citizen
1: science projects
0: and see what comes up.
1: Oh yeah. It's amazing. And this has all been in recent years. Yeah. Because like I said, when we originally started these projects, scientists were like no way. You know, <laughs> these aren't a lot of these people aren't trained scientists. But you know what? It's so easy to get started. We give you the essential information you need, guide you at first, and then you can do it on your own. So amazing. Interesting.
0: So uh something's coming to light for me right in this moment. We work with Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance and, yes. and they have what I would have never called until just this moment a citizen science project going on in grain trials. You can go to them really? you, you can go to them and you can get grains you know very specific grains and then you basically check them out you grow them out you give them data on it so that's really what it's that simple, right?
1: Absolutely. Now, I have been involved in a citizen science project in Sonoma, right, a great place to go visit. Right. <laughs> it has gone on for 10 years. We started it 10 years ago. We have the same participants. We do a sampling twice a year, same participants almost every time. And it has given us so much information on urban bee communities and the types of floral hosts that bees prefer in these habitats. So, I mean, it's been amazing. And I absolutely love our participants. They are so enthusiastic
0: and knowledgeable. Cool. Well, And I love your enthusiasm and energy behind it. I mean, you're just, so we record these on Zoom these days. So I'm actually getting to see her. She has this bright (laughs) light out there, just emanating cool citizen science stuff. Awesome. Thank you for that.
1: Great. Can I add one more thing? I'm going to make a plug here. So, I have started undergraduate research at Gateway Community College, and one of the projects that my students will work on starting spring is creating a citizen science project. So I'll be giving my contact information at the end of the podcast. Please contact me if you are interested in joining this project. It's going to be really awesome looking at urban bees in Phoenix and surrounding areas. Awesome. Awesome. So
0: let's just give them that contact
1: information right now sure so my email is jenniferfultz sweat at gatewaycc.edu all right and we'll do you like me to repeat that
0: uh sure and we'll also have it in the show notes pages but go please
1: okay it's a very long gateway gave me this email address so jenniferfultz sweat at gatewaycc.edu
0: perfect You and I recently met here at the Urban Farm. You actually came to check out the Urban Farm. And one of the things that I was struck by was your distractedness, this is not a bad thing, in walking through the yard here. So the Urban Farm is kind of a wild space. There's dozens, if not hundreds of things blooming at any given moment. And one of the things that I noticed you doing is you were like all uh, there, there was this flying thing over here that I would have just called a fly, and you said, "Oh, that's a bee, and that's this kind of bee, and oh, by the way, it's a male." And this thing yes. was this thing was maybe three millimeters long, right? Right, an eighth of an inch. Yeah. So, tell us about bees and your interest in bees.
1: Yeah. So, when I was in California as a graduate student. I didn't even know, I didn't even think about urban ecology, right? That's not something that was in the forefront of our minds as bee researchers. But I started to realize, hey, there are really well-developed bee communities in urban areas. And so it got me really interested in how can we conserve these populations? And so now we're talking about the fact that urban yards, urban green spaces are almost like stepping stones between natural habitats. What's also, I mean, there's so many fascinating things about bee communities. So, you know, and we are learning things all the time. And what's really interesting is that so many factors influence bee communities. And so it is just a constant barrage of questions (laughs) running through my brain one of the really cool things well first of all let me talk about what you see in urban areas so that if people are going out in their yards they can have some knowledge of what they might see
0: great so we're just talking here
1: honeybees right no so actually i have to admit i ignore honeybees what i'm fascinated in is what we call wild bees now, in terms of, say, urban farms, wild bees are actually better pollinators than honeybees. Wow. Yeah, more efficient. And the reason that we don't use wild bees in agriculture, except for the exception of an orchid bee, is because they are solitary nesters. And they are mostly ground nesters. So they create these little burrows and things in the ground. and. So you can't bring a hive of wild bees to (laughs) pollinate your urban farm, right? Uh You have to do certain things to encourage wild bees to come in and nest in your urban area. So yeah, wild bees are where it's at. And there are so many species. I mean, it's amazing. So just as an example, many people have seen those large black bees that burn like Drill out the wood yep. in your home, right? The outside. Well, that's a female carpenter bee. But the male is so interesting. The male is super fuzzy and gold. We call it the teddy bear bee. Oh, interesting. And yes, yeah, the same species. There are bees that are shiny green. They look like little jewels. And those are in the sweat bee group. But they're all over all over The females are all shiny green, the males have a yellow and black striped abdomen, and the rest of them is green. We have bees that are so, so tiny that I have to have a special net to even sample them. And they're on this tiny little weed that you see growing all over parking lots, right? It has tiny, tiny little white flowers. Wow. So yeah, it's amazing, the diversity.
0: So we have one or two different kinds of honeybees over here that everybody thinks about, and maybe the big back bumblebee. And then we have all of these other really thousands of different varieties of wild bees that are just there waiting to work for us.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. If you remember when I was visiting the urban farm, I was looking at this plant with little white flowers and it had so many small bees on it. I was so excited to see that. Yeah. And you know, I will never stop being excited when I see <laughs> bees in the field. Right? <laughs> I
0: was like, oh my gosh, what's the best bee? So why, um, why are, why are these wild bees
1: important in urban areas? With the increase in urban farms, you are going to get more pollination, more fruit, and the plants can reproduce better because these wild bees, like I said, they are better pollinators than honeybees. Mm-hmm. So here's a really interesting fact that not many non-bee people know. Bees have either a very short tongue or proboscis or a very long one. And so honeybees have a very, like theirs isn't very long. So they're kind of restricted to flowers that don't have those long tubes, the corolla. Oh. So if you get some long tongue bees in your yard, you'll have no problem getting those pollinated. Like for instance, squash, right? Squash oh. has a specialist squash bee that pollinates it. Yes. And so you start to get this diversity of bees and you get more pollination because honeybees are limited to certain types of flowers. Wow. All right.
0: And What types of plants do native bees prefer?
1: So there is controversy about this. And we have been researching this for years and we still don't know the answer, but wild bees definitely like native plants to whatever region you're in because they are in sync with those plants. Now keep in mind there are spring and fall bees. They're different. There is one community of bees in the spring and a different community in the fall. There are some overlapping species, but a lot of them, different different species. Bumblebees emerge in the spring, right? Whereas you get different bees in the fall. So wild bees are important so that you get this continuity of pollination. And here's the interesting thing. So we say they prefer native plants, but I have seen, as have my colleagues, bees are pretty opportunistic. They'll go to non-native plants as well, as long as they have good nectar and pollen production. Mm-hmm. And the awesome thing about that in urban areas is that you can provide floral resources that for a lot longer duration than if you just use native plants. Got it. Well,
0: and one of the things that I notice here is the aromatic herbs, mint, oregano, yeah. basil, thyme, they these are pollinator magnets absolutely
1: they the bees love anything in the mint family absolutely love it mm-hmm. but all the herbs they just bring these bees in and what always amazes me how do the, how do the bees find these isolated floral resources right i mean they must be just flying overhead and they <laughs> Pick up on some signal, visual or whatever, right. and they locate them. I have always wondered that. And another fascinating trend that I have noticed is that you will have a plant in California, like Yellow Bell's Tacoma Stands, yep. and it is so, so attractive. Huge nectar production. And then you will get Tacoma Stands here in Arizona. Nothing. The bees do not like it. And I've had students measure nectar quantity and quality, and it's the same as in California. So what's the difference? You know, it's so interesting.
0: So I know you love working with students and you you touched on this whole nectar thing. There's something that's happened for you with your students in that arena. Tell us about it.
1: Yeah. So when I was at Arizona State University, myself and three other colleagues started what we call a cure, which is undergraduate research experience. It's a whole class during the semester. My students do research on pollinators. Now, I had a student take nectar and plate it to see, you know, on a petri dish uh-huh. with medium to see what will grow on it. There are extensive microbial communities in nectar. And so, yeah, you know, and this is new information for us. So I was fascinated. Microbial communities, I had no idea. So I started looking at recent research. And this is what's fascinating. The microbial communities in nectar affect so much about the plant. It's production of what we call volatile emissions, right? Terpenoids, things that they use in plant defense, but these microbial communities, when they produce these emissions, it attracts pollinators. And so the microbial community in the nectar attracts certain pollinators. And what's even more interesting is it can differ by flower on the same plant. Oh, wow. Well, that makes perfect sense. Totally, right? Because most life on the planet is closely associated with bacteria, microbial communities. Wow! So I find that fascinating. And that is one area that
0: I may pursue with students. Wow. No kidding. So this student just out of the blue said, what if we do this? And they plated the,
1: Yeah. had
0: there isn't been previous research done on that?
1: Not a lot. And she did it on cactus flowers, which there was nothing on that.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. God, that's just got so to be epic for you, isn't it? Oh my gosh, so awesome. And the thing with these undergraduate research courses, you know, a lot of people are like undergrads, they don't know anything at that point, but I give them free rate. I say, hey, you know what? You can research whatever you want, as long as it has to do with pollinators and they work in groups. I have had students do the most interesting projects. One group looked at the same species of plant that comes in different color varieties to see okay, do bees prefer blue, red, or white flowers? And they measured nectar every day at different times of the day to see if there was wow. differences in nectar production. And we did see differences in foraging, but not huge differences in nectar production. So go figure that one out, right? Interesting. Well, so cool. the, the good thing about undergrads, and
0: I, I taught at ASU for a long time, Arizona State University, they don't have any preconceived notions. Yeah. Like they're they're fresh looking at it. Like who would have thought at our, you know, Uh at the level that you and I study, I have a master's, you have a PhD, who would have thought about plating nectar for microbes? Right? They
1: think outside the box. That is so cool. That is what I love. Yeah. So I have to say I'm passionate about conservation and research, but I am very passionate about teaching and involving people in these scientific endeavors. It is so fun and it really gets my students interested in science and research yeah that's one of the when i was when i was teaching at asu that
0: was my favorite piece my favorite piece was the interacting with the students and not just presenting the content that i was presenting but their interpretation of it Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: what they did with it i mean i i had one guy here in town who wasn't interested in composting. He took a class of mine at Arizona state university and he started a company here in Phoenix called recycled city. And he reported back to me oh. that it was partially because of this, what he learned in my class. And it's like, yes, that's exactly what we're after. Isn't
1: that the best yeah. to, you know, have people carry on this work. And that's also where it ties into citizen science because I just love getting people engaged in conservation. Yeah. And I have to say that education is going to be so, so important in trying to deal with some of our environmental issues. You think? And it starts <laughs> with younger students. Not yes. to say that when you're my age, you can't shift focus, yep. but we have this huge population of people that we can educate on conservation. Yeah. So that's why I love it too. Yeah. Well, and
0: a lot of the solutions for our coming global challenges, we have to look for na- to nature for the solutions. Yes. We have to, that's where the solutions are at.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I'm not saying that human population is why we have environmental issues. A lot of people are working on innerv- innovation and conservation. Mm-hmm. So it's just a matter of bringing it into public social media or whatever and letting people know, hey, we can do this and Bee Research Pollinators, that's my avenue for contributing to conservation. Nice. So how can we
0: conserve bees in urban habitats?
1: When I give you a book recommendation at the end, it focuses on exactly how to construct urban yards, urban gardens. So here's a few key things. Floral diversity and abundance are very important to encouraging bee communities. The more species richness, meaning number of species of flowering plants that you have, the more diversity of bees you will see in your yard. Mm. So that's very important. The other couple of important aspects here, I know a lot of people like lawns. Well, lawns are not good for bees at all. They don't do anything with it. So if you have a lawn, the best thing you can do is not mow it all the time, right? Because you're going to encourage greater diversity if you're not constantly mowing your lawn. Now, the other important part is when you construct a garden, try not to use mulch because you are blocking the access to nesting habitat. You need bare patches of soil. They like sunny areas. So don't make your bare patches. It's not going to work if they're right under the plant. They also like ferns. You know how you create the raised area around the yep. plants to keep the water in? Bees love to nest there. They love sand. Now a lot of people have used these bee hotels.
0: Oh yeah, bee blocks. Yep.
1: They have limited application limited they're limited in their usefulness and here's why i say that they are attacked and parasitized by wasps Mm. like you wouldn't believe the wasps will either just lay their eggs and when the larvae emerge they eat the bee eggs right the timing is such that that happens yeah you also cavity nesters are a smaller subset of bees so you can't just use bee
0: hotels so you're telling me that a majority and i'm i made up that word for this question a majority of native bees they're in the ground yes they're in the
1: ground and they're solitary Uh so in the bee life cycle a female will emerge say in the spring she quickly mates and then she creates her nest collects pollen to make little pollen ball, lays her eggs on the pollen balls so that when the larvae emerge, they have a food source and then she dies. And generally those larvae don't emerge till the following year and they remain in the ground as pupa. Wow. Now, another cool thing about bees that people should keep in mind is that if we have a drought, we've been in a drought in Arizona for quite a while. Yep. Bees can stay underground in this kind of hibernation state for years. It's really fascinating. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know yeah. that either. But in terms of urban yards and gardens, nesting habitat, key floral diversity. Also, I almost forgot to mention, you want to have a yard that flowers for a long duration in mm. the spring and the fall. I know a lot of people think about, okay, spring, time to plant flowers, they're annuals, they die out. But you really want to have these nectar and pollen resources during both seasons so that you support the spring bees and the fall bees. Wow. Wow.
0: Well, thank you so much for all that amazing, mind-blowing information. That was epic. (laughs) Great. So I'm gonna shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it.
1: Right. So there are several examples, but I always, will bring, absolutely. I know. <laughs> I will bring up this study I tried to do as a graduate student. So one a lot of us do I'm sorry to say trap bees and they die because Mm -hmm. you cannot identify to the species level without looking at the specimen under the microscope. So I started doing my research in the Central Valley and they're grasslands and the grass is really tall. So I started thinking, well, how do the bees see these pan traps? So it was my brilliant idea to haul out into the middle of nowhere, all of these huge rebar (laughs) posts that were like three and four feet tall. Uh And I put these little orange platforms and glued my pan traps to the top to see if it collects a different subset of bees. It was pretty much a failure and so much work. What I learned from that is when you are trying to characterize something as broad as a bee community, you need to have a somewhat narrow focus for each particular study, and then make your data available so that we can start looking at all of these different studies that people have done Mm. and start to identify trends. But I consider that one of my more work-intensive failures.
0: (laughs) I think we've all had those. Yeah. Uh, What
1: do you consider your biggest success? I brought up my CURE course-based undergraduate research experience. I consider that a huge success. So many great studies, so many, I have had my undergraduate students shift from say pre-med to conservation biology. I had one student who is now in graduate school at UC Irvine studying pollinators and that is a huge success. Not that I wanna turn people away from what they originally were studying, but anytime I can really ignite this passion is considered, I consider it a huge success. So involving undergraduates, that is really where my heart's at.
0: That we can see for sure. (laughs)
1: Uh, What drives you? Yes, so what drives me? A passion for conservation. Ever since I was in high school, I read everything I could read on conservation. And like I said, if you love a field like conservation, it doesn't matter what the organism is. What drives me is I wanted to make a difference in the world and contribute to protecting these habitats and these communities that we are so dependent on.
0: Cool. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why?
1: So this is a book that was published in 2020. And it is called The Pollinator Victory Garden, Win the War on Pollinator Decline with Ecological Gardening, it's very long, Attract and Support, Bees, Beetles, Butterflies, Bats, and Other Pollinators. So here's why I love this book. If you look at the table of contents, right, it talks about everything you need to know for urban gardening. That will attract pollinators, how you should construct your garden, the factors that are important. It also goes into what is the life, what are the life histories of these different communities? Mm-hmm. And so it is such a valuable book for people who want to contribute to urban pollinator conservation. Who's the author? Kim Irman, E-I-E-R-M-A-N.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Sounds like somebody we need to get on the podcast. Absolutely. And (laughs) what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well,
1: as some of you may have guessed, engage in citizen science. I cannot (laughs) endorse it enough. Right. As researchers, we depend on these projects. It is so hard to get funding. And even if you do get funding, I'm one person. How much data can I collect and process? not a huge amount but if i have 20 people out there doing the same thing that is awesome so absolutely engage in these projects in your area the other thing is really try to create these urban green spaces that will be stepping stones for our bee population wow cool well you know one of the
0: things that's striking with you is your enthusiasm i it's oh, it's yeah. infectious And I noticed that when you visited the urban farm, that's why I was so excited to, you know, to connect with you here and, and share it with the world. So thank you. Thank you.
1: I love talking about bees. I could do many podcasts on it. (laughs) So thank you for inviting me.
0: You bet. And how can our listeners get a hold of you?
1: How is best? My email, jennifer.folt-sweat at gatewaycc.edu.
0: Perfect.